This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. So, we rely on batteries to do a lot of things. Remember when you had to go to the store and buy like old 9 volts and things? We don't have that as much anymore. Batteries in the remote? Yeah, I guess. Even video game controllers are rechargeable. Phones, plug those in. And when you're recharging batteries, it's great. Because can you imagine if we had to buy new batteries every week for the amount we use our phones? You had to attach an old 9-volt to the bottom of that thing. It wouldn't be as effective. Phones probably, they wouldn't fit in pockets and purses and things as easily. But we would have ourselves an issue of another kind. We'd be spending an awful lot of money on batteries. Well, if we are looking at electric buses in the future, which London Mayor Ed Holder laid out as kind of a dream, an electric bus fleet at the mayor's address at his annual mayor's breakfast last week, what do we need to know about battery technology as it sits now and how is it changing to kind of help us through the winter months because it's one thing to think about electric vehicles which always seem to get tested out in california look at california they don't have a lot of snow they don't have a lot of cold and batteries don't always do that well in the cold so we have tracked down a professor of mechanical engineering at one of the leading spots for battery power anywhere in north america the university of michigan Dr. Anna Stephanopoulou joins us. Dr. Stephanopoulou, if we look at batteries and technology and dealing with things like cold, are we heading in the right direction on this? There is a lot of technology coming up that uh, could alleviate the loss of range that uh, you see with electric vehicles when it gets colder. And by colder... I mean, you know, like below, uh, like freezing, like, you know, even below 32 degrees, um, you still start seeing the uh, drop at some cases at 18 Fahrenheit, um, you would see as much as, um, you know, 40% of the range is being lost because of heating. And it also depends what is the duration of your trip. If you travel long distance, it will take, you know, the, let's say, 20 minutes to warm up, and then the rest of the time you have a fantastic performance. But if your whole entire trip is 20 minutes, like the way I drive, like I I live in an arbor and I drive to my office and it's less than 10 minutes, even my fantastic internal combustion engine that is turbocharged, it never warms up. With regard to battery life, if we're going to kind of compare it even Mm -hmm. to, say, our phones, if you take your phone out in the cold and it Mm -hmm. loses 40% of its battery life because it's cold, that battery doesn't seem to charge back to the same maximum. Would we be seeing those concerns as well? Yes, that's right. So that's what I was was going to say next. So the one issue is losing range when you are discharging the battery because you need a lot of energy to go towards heating your cabin or, you know, heating the device and you're losing energy through convection, through, you know, to the cold environment. But the other problem you have and we have in the cold environments 
is that it will take longer to charge the battery. Okay, and that can sometimes have some hindrances to it as well. Absolutely, that's right. So patience and planning is a key aspect. And I guess because we don't have patience, you know, planning is the most important. Um, In fact, the part that uh, nowadays a lot of, um, you know, everybody realizes and we are building algorithms to do this prediction is the fastest way to charge is in the beginning you have to discharge your own battery. <laughs> so in order to get the best charge, you want it to be drained completely? Is that it? Not, not completely, but you need to use the energy you have in your battery to discharge because that creates the best heat. It's internal, and it immediately will warm up the battery so that it can accept fast charging. We're talking right now with Dr. Anna Stefanopoulou, who is a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan, and we're looking at batteries because remember the that the mayor's breakfast, the state of the city address talked about maybe a hope one day of having electric buses. Well, we do live in Canada, so what kind of challenges are there in cold weather? They have those same challenges in Michigan, and Dr. Stefanopoulou, you've outlined a lot of the concerns so far. Now, you did mention there is new technology coming. How would this technology differ from what we have now? Um, so technology like heat pumps, um, that they manage much better the little heat that we have from the batteries is very important. That is actually implemented in a lot of electric vehicles in light-duty sector um, um, with you know Toyota and Tesla and many, many manufacturers. Also, heating that it's a spot heating in the cabin, not not the entire cabin. Uh, we all know the seat heating and the um, steering wheel heating um, that provides immediate comfort, and you don't have to rely on um, you know very fast warm up of the cabin. Um, now, when we move to buses and um, you know, vehicles that you open and close the doors for passengers to get in and out very often. The technology are, um, um, it's actually, it's it's wind shields. Uh, so think of it as curtains, uh, transparent curtains that we can implement in front of the door of buses so that the cold uh, wind and and temperature doesn't go in the cabin because that's what makes the buses sometimes in the 18 Fahrenheit uh, environment uh, double, require twice as much energy to actually drive the same route. But at the same time, um, you want to inform uh, the operators and the users, and there's so much uh, innovation that happens from, you know, applying things and just thinking about smart uh, ways of fixing uh, the, this particular problem we have in cold weather. And again, I want to highlight that during cold weather, even combustion engines have similar problems. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Well, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Stefanopoulos, it's been great talking with you. Thank you for kind of the, the bare bones essentials of cold weather batteries. And I think we're all looking at battery technology that has been getting better and better and hoping it just continues to go that way. Sounds like it will. Thanks for the time today. Super, yes. Good luck. Thanks.
Dr. Anna Stefanopoulou, professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. So technology getting better. Maybe by the time that we have an electric fleet of buses, we will see a case where you've got batteries that aren't hurt by cold. Away you go, and it'll cost us less money. We have... A little something that is more so than just a discussion going on in London right now, because it has appeared on the agenda of the Strategic Priorities Committee, and it deals with ways to create added revenue. We've got budget deliberations going on today. They're figuring out the city budget, but it's a multi-year budget. This is a big day. And so there's a lot happening at City Hall. We have 980 CFPL reporter Sawyer Bogdan, who is right there. So you've got up-to-the-minute stuff. If you want to follow our Twitter feed, you can get real up-to-the-minute stuff. And you can find that very easily. Um, But one of the things that's being discussed is trying to find added revenue so that you don't see a tax increase that looks bigger than the city wants it to, or you know, you don't want to be hit with, hey, here's an extra 5% on your tax bill. What do you think? Now, it's nowhere near that, but you want to keep it as low as possible, right? So what if the city could offset some of its operating costs, which aren't going down, by selling off some assets? And one of the agenda items for the Strategic Priorities Committee talks about discontinuing operations at River Road, Quarry, and Hickory, which would reduce the city's golf system by 45 holes. And the idea is that would obviously help to save money. You wouldn't have to operate those courses. Golf courses are not inexpensive to operate. Well, it sounds nice and easy, and it sounds like it would be an easy way to find a quick buck, and it wouldn't completely take away the aspect of a public golf system in the city of London. So as we really start to investigate this on a local level, I want to give you a point of view first of someone who made use of these courses as a member who has been quite outspoken about it. Please welcome Victor Young, who you may remember having worked for 980 CFPL in the past. He's now the lead producer of CKNW Mornings in Vancouver. And Vancouver is going through kind of the same sort of winter that we're getting. I think they have a little less snow now. But, Victor, you got whumped with some snow a little while ago, right? It has all melted off. You know, I've been out on the local golf courses for the couple of days. I know people in London might not want to hear it, but that's just the sad truth. Come on, it's January and you're golfing? December, January, February, <laughs> all year round. No wonder you moved out to Vancouver. No wonder. Well, you know what? You actually have some really unique points of view for London and golf. And while nobody's out on the golf courses right now, there is a lot of talk. And it was even written in the Strategic Priorities Committee agenda, some discussion about golf courses and what sorts of things should be done with the public courses. Do we look at them as assets? Do we figure out how much money they could actually make the city? Do we need three of them? All these discussions we know are going on. But you've been someone who's been a member of the public courses in the past and wanted to speak out a little bit about this. What prompted you to want to do that? One of my old golf buddies in London, he actually works right there in TD Towers with you guys. He sent 
something my way, saying that, hey, heads up, did you know the committee's going to be talking about this? And so I took a read through it. They've got that report from KPMG talking about potential savings they could find there. And I just wanted to have a look because there's the perennial need to take a look at the budget, figure out where you can save a few bucks. And I was, to be honest, a little bit concerned because one of the councils on this referred to saving money through the golf courses and tennis courts as low-hanging fruit. And I said to myself, hang on a second, I'm not sure I would class city-owned recreation facilities as low-hanging fruit. Yeah, that's a good point. And as much as we want to call them assets, and I think that's the big thing right now to look and see what does the city have. And I think a lot of municipalities are doing that in order to be a revenue generator so that you don't have to have big tax increases coming through the budget. If we're looking at it from a recreation standpoint, we need to get, you know, your, a view through your eyes because the idea is that there are three public courses and you would think, well, what city needs three public courses? So, what do you see as being the way that London courses play out that makes this attractive to recreational golfers in the city? You know, when people look at the golf courses, and as someone who has a member there, as you mentioned, everyone knows Thames is by far the busiest golf course. It's the hardest to get a tee time on. It's definitely the highest usage. And we see that reflected in the numbers here from the KPMG report as well. The reality is it's a great course, but it's hard to get on it. And if you're someone who likes to get out there and get your money's worth out of the membership, you know that Thames is hard to get on. You know that the Fanshawe Classic is hard to get on. And a lot of people play the quarry and River Road after they have tried to get a tee time at these other courses or just decided that they don't want to bother. So although there's many golf courses and there's a nine-hole course in there as well, the Hickory Nine over at uh, over at Thames, they each do serve actually quite a unique role in the makeup of the City of London's golf. We're talking with Victor Young, who was a member of our team here at Global News Radio 980 CFPL in London, now is the lead producer at CKNW Mornings in Vancouver, but a very avid golfer. In fact, you used to work a lot of morning shifts, and that kind of opened up the afternoon for things like golf, right? You know, when you finish work at noon, everyone says, oh, that's amazing. You get to the grocery store every day, uh, no lineups, no matter where you go. I'll tell you, the commute was just an absolute dream. <laughs> but the flip side of that, I had afternoons off. I was done work at noon every day. I needed something to do. All my friends worked till 5 p.m., traditional 9 to 5 jobs. Being able to get out there, go to the City of London golf courses, you make friends with the regulars. There's an entire social network happening out there, and many of the people out there are people who don't necessarily have the same options for socialization, whether they're retired, whether they are youth who are looking for something to do during the summer months. It serves many purposes, and I think that there needs to be some some careful thought put into this before saying, hey, there's a few bucks on the table, let's cash in. Now, Victor, you hinted at, you know, the, the nines or looking at, at hickory or quarry, things like that, and saying, well, we would still have holes. We'd still have public holes. You just wouldn't have as many holes to play on. So how would you see that playing out if they were to do something like that and reduce the number of golf holes in the city? I think that if they were to go with the option that they're considering here, they've said, you know what? If we are not going to maintain the status quo, it would be River Road Golf Course that they would shut down. That's out in the East End. 
But the problem with that is I think it serves the role of actually allowing people to justify the cost of their membership, you know, maybe just to their wife, if not to themselves. But I think that gives them the ability to say, okay, look, I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck here. I'm putting money into the city coffers. And if you compare what you're paying for a membership at those City of London golf courses, I think they are a great bellwether for the city to keep the cost of golf accessible. When you were a golfer in London, why would you have had a membership at the City of London courses as opposed to one of the private courses. What was the attraction? There's absolutely no doubt that it was the number of golf courses available because I could play different courses every day of the week virtually. And not only that, Mike, actually something I want to highlight is that Parkside 9 Par 3 course that's out at the tail end of the Quarry Golf Course up by Fanshawe Park and Hyde Park there, that's a free Par 3 course that is just packed with families, with school teams teaching the kids how to play. It is a fantastic resource for people in the community who might not necessarily be able to afford to golf, even at some of the more accessible price points that you see out there. You're telling me something I had no idea about right now. There is a free nine-hole golf course in London? Absolutely right. During the summer months, you can play the pitch and putt course there, the longest hole, number nine, around 100 yards, you can get out there and work on your wedge game. You can bring the kids. You can get people into a sport that really brings just a lifetime of joy and community. You get out there for four hours, you're going to have a conversation whether you want to or not. Now, if you look at, you mentioned meeting people, the recreational aspect of it. Now that you live in a different city, do you see something similar in Vancouver? Or is this kind of maybe unique to London? You know, London certainly has a lot more to offer when it comes to the size of its golf operations. And I think part of that is just the fact that they were able to get this land, some of it's owned by the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. Some of it over at River Road is on on ground that you can't necessarily do a whole lot with. It gets pretty soggy, built on a landfill there. Here in Vancouver, there is not nearly as much available through the city when it comes to public golf courses. And I got to tell you, Mike, I miss it. (laughs) Well, you're welcome to come back anytime. I know it's not exactly a short flight or a short hop in any way. Certainly not a short drive, but we're always happy to have you back. At the same time, we have to think about finances on this, which will be the other equation that the city is looking at. But, Victor, thanks for providing a point of view from someone who used the courses, loved the courses, and saw real use for the courses. All the best out there as you make use of the Vancouver courses in, uh, that's right, you heard him say it, January. Thanks for checking in, Mike. Take care. That is Victor Young, works for CKNW in Vancouver, and has a great point of view on London's public golf courses, which, again, this is in the Strategic Priorities Committee agenda, the idea that one of the options to look at to perhaps find added revenue comes from shutting down 45 holes. Let's open this up. 519-643-2222. If you are somebody that is looking around saying, hey, why do we need that many holes of golf? There's a lot of private courses everywhere. Yeah, this this is an Victor mentioned it. We've had a city councilor call it low-hanging fruit. Yeah, this is this is the low-hanging fruit. Take advantage of that. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980CFPL.ca. Got a note from Mike, and Mike makes a good point here. He says the city golf courses can be self-sustaining. 
In fact, when the London Aquatic Center was built, 20% of golf course green fees subsidized the center and still does. I want to look into that. That's, you know, that would be an argument to keep the golf course right there. Uh, that money's in the budget annually. Mike says London's tennis courts, soccer pitches, and baseball diamonds are not as income generating. He says, I'm a golfer, tennis player, baseball, you name it, I play it. If the tennis courts were sold, that property could be developed. Similarly, baseball diamonds. My recommendation, do nothing. Quality of life issue. And that is what it comes down to. And Victor mentioned it. You've got people who make use of the public golf courses as part of not just recreation, but this, this is where they hang out. This is this this is social life. This this is more than that. And you could say, yeah, but there's the private courses. <sighs> Do we want to go in that direction? What do you think? Is this easy money? Is this an idea to raise some funds to offset tax breaks? Or is this a case where you look at it and come up with, you know, you do have to pay a little bit of money to live in the city that you do. The other thing that we keep hearing about in terms of popping up in a number of places is the latest version of the coronavirus. And we wanted to get a little bit more on this and maybe dispel some myths if we can. Just talk about the way that coverage is going on this. Dr. Michael Curry is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia in their Faculty of Medicine. And he's been nice enough to join us on London Live. Dr. Curry, we keep seeing headlines. They say things like the number of cases, that there are new cases in new places, flights have been canceled. Now we've got a cruise ship that people are not allowed to debark because they might have a case there. They're not sure. Is it time for a deep breath when we're talking about this particular coronavirus? Exactly. This isn't that much dissimilar from the seasonal influenza infections that we deal with every year. So coronavirus, it's a respiratory virus like influenza. Initial reports, which are probably exaggerated, would suggest it has a fatality rate of 2 to 4%. The good news is most of the time these initial reports seem to over-report that number. If you can remember the swine flu from 2009, which we later called the H1N1 pandemic, initial report, 50% of people being infected were dying from it. We later found out it was well under 1%. The issue is we're only testing the sickest of the sick initially, which makes it look a lot worse than it really is. Ah, gotcha. That's interesting that that's where those numbers would come from. Yeah, so when you get sick with an upper respiratory infection, you know, most of us stay at home. You know, a small percentage of people see their doctor or go to an emergency department, and an even smaller percentage are the sort of people that actually end up getting tested. So the people who are getting tested, at least initially, are the people who are deathly ill, on life support, on ventilators. Those are the people we're testing initially. Now that we know more about it, we're testing more broadly, and we're going to capture the people that their symptoms aren't putting them on life support, but it's causing a runny nose, a sore throat, and a cough. Yeah, and that's something that we don't necessarily allow ourselves to think about when we're seeing headlines of coronavirus has hit this city, coronavirus. And shouldn't we be calling it a coronavirus, or shouldn't it have a better name by now? Because coronavirus is pretty wide, isn't it? That's right. It's a big family of viruses. 
And so almost all of us, both of us who are adults, have probably had a coronavirus infection. Probably about 10% of common colds are caused by coronaviruses. The thing that's different about this one is it's a new coronavirus, and there might be elements to it which are making it uh, more deadly and more dangerous than uh, your run-of-the-mill coronaviruses, and more akin, although I want to stress that, you know, the seriousness of this statistically looks to be a lot less than it was of SARS, but at least initial reports make it look a lot more uh, a lot more serious than just regular coronaviruses that almost all of us have had before. We're talking with Dr. Michael Curry. Dr. Curry is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Curry, we've kind of been getting some questions about things that I'd love to maybe go over if you have a second. One of them would be, if you order something online that comes from China, could it come with some sort of virus? And I think what the person is hinting at is, could it come with a coronavirus? It's not impossible, but I think the risk of that having been shipped across the ocean, probably being in either the hold of a ship or the cargo hold of an aircraft, the chance of the virus surviving such a long trip is is pretty minimal. Is it zero? I don't know if I can confidently say that, but I think wiping down a purchase that you get from China when you first open the package is probably more than sufficient to protect you. Okay, so that's good. In fact, we should expand on that. How long can a virus last outside a body if it's on a surface or on your hands or on your body? That's a great question, and the answer is we don't know. This virus wasn't known to science a month ago, and uh, I've looked for the answer to that question. I've been asked that question a lot, and we're just not familiar enough with that virus to know. So it does exist outside the body for some period of time. It's... um, it does have some resistance or resilience in the environment, but how long, we're not quite sure. Gotcha. How about other viruses? How about you know other forms of a common cold or a flu virus? Would many of them have lasting power of, of any significance? Probably not. Probably a couple of days, but it's going to depend on a couple of things, including airflow, if it's exposed to sunlight and the ultraviolet radiation in there temperature. So it's going to depend on a bunch of environmental variables. But like with most colds, with most cold viruses, which includes coronaviruses, we're looking maybe a couple of days at most in the environment. All right. We are talking right now with Dr. Michael Curry, clinical associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Maybe as a final question, when we look at other viruses, and you hinted at this earlier, like other flu strains, For someone like you, are they more concerning even than something like this in terms of what they can do and how serious they are to treat? Yeah, historically, historically, the flu has affected somewhere in the range of 30 to 40,000 people dying of it every year in the United States of the flu. Canadian numbers, I don't have those off the top of my head, but are roughly a tenth of that. But we are looking at several thousand people a year dying of the flu, and most of us aren't too panicked about the flu because, you know, millions of people get infected every year. So, you know, a couple of thousand deaths statistically is still a very low risk. You know, right now, coronavirus has, as of last report, had 123 deaths associated with it in China, a country much larger than Canada. So the effects of the flu, at least so far, 
on people on an annual basis seems to be something that's much greater than what we've seen in coronavirus, at least this far into its outbreak. Dr. Curry, thank you so much for weighing in on this for us. Thank you very much, and have a great afternoon. You as well. Dr. Michael Curry, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC. So can viruses survive? Sure. Are they likely to? No. Wash your hands? Absolutely. And this is one of those ones where he's more concerned about strains of the flu than he is about a new coronavirus, which needs its own name. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.